Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our awesome guest is Rebecca L. Weber, journalist and writing coach, and we're going to talk about storytelling in marketing today. This show is brought to you by Userlist, an email automation platform for SaaS companies. On board, engage and nurture your customers as well as marketing leads. To follow the best practices, download our free printable email planning worksheets at useless.com slash worksheets. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Jane. So nice to be here with you. We're so excited to learn on this topic because you can apply storytelling in everything, in design, in marketing, in investor pitches, basically everything, everywhere. So before we get going, can you tell us a few words about what you do these days and uh, how you got started with this craft? Yeah, so I am both a freelance journalist and a writing coach. And so on the one hand, I write stories for mainstream publications, mostly places in the U.S., but also all over. And in more recent years, I've also been coaching writers, many of them journalists, people who are interested in breaking into the publications, but also some other people who I don't identify as writers, but who find themselves doing lots of writing. Like you just mentioned, pretty much everyone these days is doing some storytelling, putting some words for other people to read, whether it's on their webpage or in their emails or on their blog post or their show notes, wherever it is. It seems like almost everybody is a writer these days. And how did you get started? Initially, I got started with the journalism just by writing one pitch. I was working at a magazine I didn't particularly want to be at. I wanted to be writing and they didn't want me to be a writer. They didn't see me that way. And so I started pitching story ideas elsewhere, sending off ideas sort of in my spare time. And I kept doing that and getting the assignments and really enjoying that. And at a certain point, I said, this is actually what I want to do full time. That's when I was living in Washington, D.C. Then uh, after a certain point, I thought, I have actually a lot to share with other people. And I knew that there were a lot of writers who wanted to be writing for some of the publications that I was writing for. So a lot of these sort of big well-known ones like CNN, the New York Times, Dwell Magazine. And they wanted to be able to write for those publications as well. And so I started teaching them. And initially they told me that what they wanted was these specific skills around how to pitch, how to market themselves, how to communicate with the editors, what they could do. And I could teach them that. But the more and more I worked with people, the more I saw that they had a lot of mindset issues as well. A lot of ideas about what they could and couldn't do that was holding them back that wasn't really related to how good they were at their craft. And so the mindset aspect has become a big part as well. And then now when I work with people who don't identify as writers, people who are entrepreneurs or academics or do some other kind of work as their primary profession, we work on both. We work on what can you do to make your words stronger, more compelling, tell a better story, have it be more engaging, really resonate with your audience. And also what do you need to tell yourself differently so that you can actually put those pieces together? You mentioned those limiting beliefs that writing people have. Could you share one or two oh. examples of like <laughs> specific limitations that we impose on ourselves? I'm not good enough. This isn't good enough. I'll never be good enough. That's all. This is kind of really straightforward. 
Yeah. And that's, that's true with people who are writing an email for an internal thing within their company. And that's also true with people who are writing feature stories for the BBC. You know, it's, it, it, I feel like it's something that shows up all across the board. There's a lot of doubt. I think that one of the distinctions is, it's like, do you sort of hear the doubt and get crippled by it and pull back from it? Or just like, oh yeah, here's the part where I doubt myself. Whatever. Let me just get on with this because I've got some work to do. We've gathered today to to discuss uh, storytelling. And can you give us the fundamentals of the storytelling as a concept? And then there is like this hero's journey and... So what what a story is, and then we, we're going to try and apply that in different aspects of marketing. Sure. I mean, my understanding of the hero's journey is from Joseph Campbell, who I was obsessed with. And anybody who's seen Star Wars kind of probably already understands what it is, right? That the hero starts off in one place, the beginning of things or sort of a mission that they resist and they don't want to do the thing, but then they go, they accept it. They go through a series of trials and at the end, there's some kind of you know, great revelation or outcome. There's that clear beginning, middle and ends. This is true in storybooks when we're little kids and it works really well in all kinds of short and long form for adults as well. We don't see it all the time in marketing, but when it does, when we do see it, it's it's really, really effective. For me, it has always been hard to connect the dots between like what a Star Wars hero does and how you write an informational article. Like there is obviously no hero there. And if you invent one, well, you might for a couple of pieces, but that's not the strategy that really is applicable in daily life. Like how does a minimum viable version of the story work within a boring, boring practical piece? Well, I think sometimes we could say that we don't actually need to have an epic journey adventure in every single small piece, right? You know, you have to sort of modify your expectations. And sometimes you do want a piece that is really just simple, straightforward. Here's how you do this thing. And it's just, you know, numbered steps. And sometimes that clarity and simplicity is actually going to be what the reader wants and desires. But sometimes we can also turn it up a little bit, which I think is what you're getting at. And so sometimes we might want to bring in a little bit of humor, bring in a little bit of color, bring in a little bit of storytelling. And we can bring in, for example, that messy middle part of the hero's journey can be like, what happens if you try this and then that happens? Or here's what happened when I tried this and it wound up taking this detour. Or when I worked with a client and tried to do it in this way, we wound up having this unexpected discovery to bring in little bits in color of color about what your experience has been like going through this process in the past or what kind of additional sort of things to watch out for or things that you might discover along the way. I think that that can be a way to start to introduce a little bit more humanity and make the piece a little bit more relatable. And very often, as I'm sure you've seen, is that sometimes it's really just at the top. Sometimes there's just a paragraph at the top that gives us that anecdotal lead. Here's just a few sentences or one paragraph that's sort of humorous, like, oh, this person has got something a little bit more to say. And then let us get into the very clear steps about what it is that need to get done. When you sit down to write, it's not like you have stories in front of you and you can pick the one that fits. It's usually like, oh my God, where do I find material? Like, what is your recipe for success in this situation? I think whenever possible, you actually do want to start that story bank. I think of it as like an ideas bank. And when you notice little bits and pieces, you just drop them in and you can do this in a Google doc. I'm sure you have much more sophisticated ways to keep track, but it can be very simple 
however it is that you store things like that so that when you notice things, when you're having a conversation, when you're working on a client project, when you're reading somebody else's thing and you say, there's something here, there's this little, little bit. I like to spend one minute annotating it, just writing about how I think this might be relevant to my reader or to my audience in the future. And then when I come, when, when I do then have time to sit down and write, I've got a ton of things to work with. And I start to see maybe there's one or two of these that go together and it's actually going to be much more than if I just wrote about one of them, because the two of these things combined is sort of more than the sum of its parts. Actually, there is a very meta story to how we got together today is uh, the way we source stories for our own articles at Uselist and uh, I'm running it email marketing platform, and that involves ton of education and writing. So we gather those stories and have a board for I call them content ideas, mm-hmm. usually inspired by customer conversations or community conversations, real life things that people worry about. So one example that really inspired me was one of our researched customers who said that they have great success with emails that have include stories uh, from their own life where they don't show themselves as heroes, but rather than like show their mistakes, how they're human. And that resonates a ton with people. So I had the subject of storytelling in emails to investigate. And then your friend, your teammate pitched this topic. And I was like, this is super timely. We're going to have a conversation with Rebecca. And that's how we got together. So this is like a story of three layers. So one way to collect those can be from research conversations and just basically everywhere where you spot a problem. Anything else beyond problems to look out for? Like what can be inspiring that uh, makes people interested? Yeah. Well, I, I do think that that's a great, it sounds like you already actually have that idea bank, right? The customer conversations, it's rich. It's such a good source. If you just pull out each time you've got a good question or more than one person is having that question or that problem, just have those ready to go. But yeah, it doesn't have to be a problem. And it can be absolutely something from your own life. So I know that when you're thinking about your audience, your ideal customer all the time, you can probably start to relate. If I were going to be just having a coffee with this person, they're like, so what's going on in your life? You might be thinking about what is happening. Maybe it's the fact that there's something weird with the weather in your area or what you're eating or what film you saw recently and seeing how does this actually relate, not just in a purely conversational way, but how does it relate to this person who has the specific worldview and these specific interests and try to bridge that that gap a little bit. I mean, this is going to sound really silly, but you were talking about the hero's journey, not necessarily, you know, saving the universe or the galaxy or whatever. The other day I sent out an email about how I was having a hard time getting myself to adjust to a new morning routine because my kid is in a new school. And I was saying I was having such a hard time getting myself to put on my shoes to go get a coffee, even though I knew that if I did that, it would help me start the mornings earlier. And instead I started wearing flip-flops, you know, just sandals in the morning. It's summer here in Cape Town. And that sort of ended my own resistance. It meant I got out without saying like, just put on the sneakers. It was like, oh, it's so easy to put on the flip-flops. I started my, my day earlier as a result, started my writing earlier as a result. And from my audience, hearing those little details about how are you working through your day, handling the writing responsibilities as well as whatever is going on in your life, it's such a small, silly little thing, but it's also very, very relatable. And it's a kind of little anecdote that helps people understand, oh, 
our our hero's journey might actually be made up of very, very small things, including how are you going to get out of the door and get your coffee so you can actually get started? I'm collecting little stories about uh, things that affect uh, behavior change. <laughs> like mm. the, the one that you mentioned uh, is there is a popular variation of that, how uh, you need to like prepare clothes to go work out in the morning. Another one is like, don't make people walk instead, give them a dog. So they have to walk. That one was yeah. somewhere from our podcast guest here. And another one, there's a whole book on motivation by Edward Desi about how rewards actually kill our motivation. So mm. rewards, incentives, anything in marketing can be pretty dangerous because you're trying to uh, replace people's intrinsic motivation with a $25 gift card, which is a horrible thing to do uh, oftentimes. Short-sighted, so, yeah. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned the story about yourself. Uh, is there any caution uh, like about sharing only you stories all the time? Like. Um, maybe speaking about yourself is a problem or being too miserable is a problem and you should not be positive and, and sparkling, you know, <laughs> any words of caution? I think that it's nice to have a balance, right? And so that you'll start to notice that people are relating to your stories and how personal you want to get, you know, um, some people have certain things that they might want to talk about. You talk about the dog, you might want to try out what it's like to mention your pet occasionally to sort of drop them out through your conversation so that people get to know, oh yeah, you have this particular pet. Here's their quirks. Here's their name. It's it's not that it's an email series about your pet, but there get to be those little things. And also starting to bring in what it's like for you to work with your clients and help them work through things. That can be very, very useful. Again, you sort of start to test to see what are the things that are getting responses, what seems to be the easiest things for you to write and what are the things that get the biggest response from your audience? What are the ones that people say, wow, that really spoke to me? I always love it when I get an email that says something along the lines of like, it's like you're in my head. I was just thinking about the same thing. That's always an indicator that you're really on the right track. I think in terms of marketing, in terms of being able to connect with your audience. You're a podcaster as well. Uh, Do you often get much feedback about your podcast? Because like, I've been podcasting for years, run two shows and still like, don't typically have people screaming feedback at us. <laughs> I, I don't get as much feedback as I would like to be perfectly honest. It's pretty silent, isn't it? <laughs> I I do get some. And the it's interesting because I, I actually tend to get the most emails. The emails that I get tend to be from people who I've actually already worked with in the past. And that's who I usually am thinking about when I'm doing the podcast because I really know them well as a group. And so I'll be thinking about them and being like, where are they in their journey? So it's maybe a little bit more advanced sometimes. It's maybe a little bit more specific, but obviously like it does connect with them and they do, they do see that it's something that allows them to continue in their journey. Um, I got, I got one of the best pieces of feedback I actually got was just the other day from somebody who said that she was listening with her 11 year old and the 11-year-old had been having like a writing problem, like with her writing homework and had been crying earlier that day. And the podcast came up and at the end, the 11-year-old said, that was really good. And then they started talking about how it connected to the issues she was having at school. 
And so for me, that was one of the nicest pieces of feedback I'd ever gotten. I guess you could say I probably am at a slight advantage because my listeners are writers. And so when they write in, <laughs> let me know what's working. <laughs> they, they usually communicate in a really nice and effective way. I think that you can ask your podcast listeners, like, of course, you know, can you leave a review or send me an email, but also share it out on your blog or share it in social and like point out to them the different kinds of places that they could write about it or could share it. And probably, you know, sooner or later, one of them, one of them resonates more. The different platforms do send to, seem to resonate with particular individuals more than others. With storytelling, uh, can you recall um, one particular piece, uh, any piece, in fact, where it was a boring and a horrible article and then you suddenly managed to incorporate a story into it and it suddenly became very successful? Yeah. I mean, for myself, because I have pitched so many of my own story ideas, I tend to get assignments that I really want to do because I've come up with them myself. I've created this assignment about something I want to write about. The more boring ones would tend to be like an editor comes and says, can you do this? And I'm like, oh, this is dry or this isn't working. And so for myself, as a journalist, the thing that I always try to do is see who could I talk to about this where the person's perspective is going to be interesting. Even if the subject matter is kind of dry, I can ask them about their personal background or how they got into this or tell me what it's like for you on the ground. So there was this one guy that I was talking to that was this, uh, he like designed dams or something for like electricity, you know, and it was like, it was like very technical, very above my um, head. But I asked him to tell me about his upbringing and asked him to tell me about what it was like working on the ground with the people, because I knew that he sometimes went um, on site to these places. And that became fascinating and rich. And it was just so much more interesting for me. And then I was able to bring in that color and that detail and kind of bring the reader there as well. The reader would also like to hear about what it's like on the ground with the water sort of splashing and all the people around them and just sort of trying to get that, that visual to pop. Some of the most basic questions that you can ask are the ones that will actually yield really good specific results. So as a, as a reporter, as a journalist, you learn to ask who, what, when, where, how, and why. And you can also bring in sensual details, which may not always work in your story, but, you know, sort of bring in like how, what something looks like, what it smells like, what it tastes like, the feel, the sound, any of those details help create a scene, help the reader have an experience of something more than just dry and boring and feeling like there's not not much there. You basically anticipated my question and how to bring in. Yeah, you, you've been saying these words a couple of times already, like bringing in like color and flesh and, and texture to your writing. So any other tips on how to do that beyond the details of like <laughs> flavor and smell, which I don't often see in B2B marketing, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't expect them to be in the in the main article, but you might be able to talk a little bit about, say, if you went to a conference and what is it like in this different city and what is it like, what is the local dish like? Again, it's not going to be the, what the main thing is about, but it allows... I don't know. Would that make sense? Would you want to to read a little bit about the person going and and meeting with other peers and what it was it like could in the place be. that they... There's a lot like in yeah. business conversations, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also really like when you say conversations, I like dialogue a lot. We don't see this in articles that much, but if you can sort of borrow from the movies you like, borrow from the novels you like, 
And novels, a good conversation is really juicy. And so if you could imagine, if you go to a conference and you're listening in to what three different people are saying, maybe you're one of the people, but you know, you're reproducing or recreating that conversation, it can be very engaging. Have you ever seen storytelling gone very wrong? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think that we see really, ex- I think one of the things that I really don't like is when things are overly dramatic when they don't need to be, right? When they're overly sensationalistic just for the sake of getting somebody to click, getting somebody to read, getting somebody to pay. And we've all had that sort of clickbait headline kind of things. I'm not crazy about that. I feel like you can be a little bit more subtle, be a little bit more real, and then have it be a more lasting engagement with the reader. There is this way of inventing a story when you don't have a real one, when you try to like invent a potential hero for your product and like tell their uh, situation. And it always comes off as artificial, to be honest, if you try to do that. Is it just like a lost cause and there is no hope in doing that? Or are there some entertaining examples that turned out right? Well, I feel like sometimes there can be nice analogies and I guess sometimes there must be some case studies based on, you know, multiple users or that kind of thing. But yeah, they usually do seem like they're, they fall a bit flat. I agree with you. Um, I think that can be useful sometimes to get you going, right? Like here's what I'm going to write about because I don't have a great case study, but let me sort of write this as like a sort of a first draft to give myself some ideas. And then, and then you can sort of use that to ask, well, if I were going to include a real person, who would it be? How would I find this person? Right. Sort of like as a springboard for getting that, that authenticity. Let's talk about storytelling in different formats and genres that we get. And we're not talking novels. Uh, For example, how would a story get embedded into a product landing page Mm -hmm. or a product onboarding emails or email or an article about something boring? But well, we talked about that a bit. Landing pages, that's a particularly interesting one. Yeah. I don't know that it has to be fundamentally different for the different genres. I mean, obviously they serve slightly different purposes, and they're going to likely be different lengths so that they, you may have a different amount of attention from your reader. But I think that we can look for a continuity across those different formats. And it can also be a useful way then to sort of experiment. If I try this one storytelling technique in my email, do I get more opens? Do I get more clicks? Do I get more replies? You know, is there more response? And if so, then that could be an indication. Maybe that's the kind of story to use in a place that's going to have more longevity, like the landing page. There's this traditional concept of a pain dream fix kind of sales page structure. Do you feel like that's essentially a prototype of a story in itself, even if we don't talk about a certain person? Hmm, That's an interesting way to put it. I mean, I think that I think that you could look at it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Is, I mean, it gives us that, that contrast. In a story, you always want to have some tension, right? And that's what's happening in the beginning, middle, and end is that there's some kind of conflict that needs, that will tend typically rise until it gets resolved in some kind of a way. And I think that that's also what's happening essentially with, you know, sort of problem solution. Let me tell you about how it is that you have this issue or that this other person had this problem that you can relate to. And here's the solution for it. Here's a way to solve it. And here's what will happen once it is solved. 
testimonials are a pretty impressive way to bake in human factor and, and stories into what you do. Do you have a favorite format for including testimonials, like long quotes, short quotes, maybe separate pieces? Yeah, you know, this is this is a thing that I actually just started doing recently that a copywriter friend of mine was showing me how to do, where she, you've, say you've got this great testimonial, right? And you've asked some really good questions, which I do like questions very much along the lines of what you were asking, like, where were you before this thing? Where are you afterwards? You know, what were your problems then? How's it solved? What's different for you now? So you've got this great sort of copy to work with. And then you sort of say like, here's like the, let's say it's a four sentence quote that you like to take the one sentence that you like the most. And rather than bolding it, she suggested that I put it as, as the pull quote or like the H2, like the headline, the big headline. Yes, on top. Headline, headlining your testimonials. Headlining the top part, like the one sentence that's in the middle, put that up top and then have the, the entire thing, including the sentence that is the headline, have it below and it just sort of like gently reinforces. And I actually think it, it really pops. It really helps the, the person who's just going to skim, they still see it. And the person who's really going through and reading everything, they get to reinforce it as well. well let's talk about emails. Um, and you're not from the email marketing world, and that's great because we're going to have a fresh perspective now. <laughs> uh, what do you like to see in your inbox? If you're writing emails, what do you like to write? What do you like to receive? What's your uh, idea? Yeah, so there are always a few people who I'm like, whatever it is this person has to say, I'm interested to hear the way, what their fresh take is on things. And so there are a few people whose emails I open right away. And I guess for me, as the person who writes them, I'm like, well, I'd like to be that person for somebody else, right? And so for me, those people, it doesn't matter so much what their subject lines are. I know that everyone talks all the time about subject lines. And I know that for myself, there are some subject lines I've written that do get more opens. But I feel like the consistency over time, if if you're sending things that are valuable, that are enjoyable, that make a great offer, that those are going to be the things that people are going to remember about you. And they're going to always want to open your emails, almost regardless of what it says. And then I think, yeah, I mean, I think that you do not have to offer the same kind of thing in every single email, that sometimes it can be that anecdote. Sometimes it can just be a personal story. And sometimes you want to make a really strong, clear offer about how this person can work with you or your product that you have to offer, or, you know, you're directing them to your, um, to your podcast or to your blog to read more. I think there's so many different ways that there are to offer value in, in the email itself. There's this uh, framework from Gary Vaynerchuk and the book that he wrote with the same title, Jab, 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 Right Hook. So mm -hmm. you provide value multiple times and then you just have a short right hook kind of call to action, what they can do and buy from you. And then you go back to providing more and more value. Mm -hmm. So that kind of plays along what you said there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, because in that context, when you actually make the offer, that's a lot of value for them too, right? That they're going to really, they're going to see even the offer seems to be like value for them. I have a few questions about writing articles and mm -hmm. how you, do you graduate from writing things for your very forgiving blog audience? Uh, <laughs> to getting somewhere in publications and what's so fundamentally different between pieces that are written in like the New York Times and anything that's written in the blogs online. Like what's, what's different? How do you graduate from one to another? Yeah. So 
Look, there there are blogs and there are blogs, right? So so there are some blogs that are really trying to um, explore something new and different that hasn't been done before, and they are fact checked and they are thoughtful and they're looking at primary sources, um, interviewing the right people and putting everything together in a really thoughtful way. And there are ones that don't, right? So um, assuming that that this is the case, like that pathway to writing for those sort of more traditional publications is largely about understanding the audience. One of the things that happens very often with a blog is that when it's our own blog, we can experiment and try different things. And our idea of who our audience is may change or actual readers are may change over time. But as we get clearer and clearer about that, we're writing for them and for their needs and what they want and what they need. It's not fundamentally different with with a more mainstream or a larger audience. You need to sort of read the publication to get a sense and a feel for who they are, what their background knowledge is, what their questions are. And so if you were to take like a very technical topic that you would otherwise be writing about for a really niche publication and breaking that down for a more mainstream publication, you're going to have to put in a lot more context than the people who are already specialists are going to need to know and be able to put it in such a way that any sort of educated general interest reader would be able to access and understand. Those are, those are sort of the main things and sort of that's going to be shifting from a niche audience to a mainstream audience. That can also be shifting from a geographical audience, like, like if there's if a product that is, you know, much more local or regional and then bring it to an international audience, it's just sort of shifting the idea about who the audience is. Even those so-called mainstream publications, they always actually have a specialized audience. It's just, if you are one of those members, it can be sometimes hard to recognize it because you're sort of a, a fish in water, if you know what I mean. Do you feel like your clients, coaching clients, do they all have the ultimate goal of appearing in like big name publications? Not all of them. No, many of them specifically say the Guardian, the New York Times, the Times of London, the Washington Post. There are a small handful that most people say they want one or two of those. But I think that Oftentimes that's because those publications represent something to them about having made it, if you will. And also there's the potential to reach a much wider audience. I think it's most important for them to identify who their ideal clients are and why, right? Sort of like, what are the criteria that their ideal client would have? And very often it isn't that one big, well-known publication. Very often they are smaller, more specialized Maybe there are publications that does different types of topics or different types of treatment, like a different kind of angle. And I think this is super, super important is that to recognize, especially these days, I mean, the audience that you want to reach and that you want to connect with, the one who you know that the perspective that you have is really going to matter to them, they're out there. It's a matter of sort of identifying that that's who you want to be writing for and being able to position in such a way so that you can tell your story to that audience. When you as a professional look at stories that get published in, well, the big name publications and also others, do you feel that there is a certain flavor or style to each of them? Or is it all about the same principles and one interesting story can be a good fit for multiple ones? Uh, it's a great question. I think that there are some core elements that can transfer across different publications. And we'll sometimes see this, that like, you know, on whatever day it is, multiple publications will be doing a very similar story, but they all come at it slightly differently. And particularly with those large publications like New York Times, 
the different sections are so different from one another. You know, it's really as if they have like many little publications under this one umbrella one. And so I think it's actually most important to figure out first who the publication is, the publication and the section within it, and understand what their sensibilities are. And then you can start to adapt the story idea for them. If you do it the other way around, it either won't, they won't want to assign it because it will be not a good fit, or you'll just have to come back and redesign it. So you say like, let me write the story, then decide who it's for. And then you'll have to go back and make it fit all over again. Do you have any other, this sounds very much like a pitching tip for, mm-hmm. uh, for writers. Do you have other um, outreach recommendations on how to get placed into publications? Yeah, sure. So like I said, like the, the foundation is sort of understanding, you know, who it is that you're writing for. And then from there, once you start to develop your idea, you want to make sure that your idea is really clear. You want to be able to ideally be able to express it in one sentence, if not a few sentences, very short paragraph. This is what the story is about and the angle and make it really clear why you're the one to be telling it, what unique perspective or access or sensibility that you have. You also really want to include a reason why the story has to be told now. Now might be today, but it might be in six months if it's a print magazine. But, you know, what is what is timely about this piece? And I also think it's really important to think about the visuals because virtually every publication is going to have some visual component, whether that's a photo or an illustration or a video. And if you're thinking ahead about this, that helps show the editor that you're going to be easy to work with and be able to help provide that as well. Ideally, I think in a pitch, the first paragraph really sounds like the first paragraph of the final piece. You have a paragraph or two like that, and then you transition into talking about how you'll do it, like what your plan is to actually execute it. Can you recall any commercial brands and uh, from any industry, uh, but ideally from the software, but not necessarily, that are doing storytelling right that you can say people are keen to read specifically or either like because there's this problem when you talk about human writing there's like oh amazing authority like we're listening to every word like you said whatever shows up in the inbox is great but the moment it becomes a brand even though if it's the same person writing on behalf of the brand it like instantly plummets in value do you feel like there are brands who can overcome that? Well, I think that there are there are examples of content marketing where sometimes they're writing about things that are adjacent, right? And mm-hmm. this is sort of what we're saying about like you'd be writing about your own personal experiences, but also about the other activities, the other points of view that they have about the world. What's their take on a particular topic? Sorry, I'm not I'm not sure about an actual example of a brand who's doing that that would be relevant. So basically brands are just like sending ads to us and that's all they can do. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> basically nobody made a lasting impression on you. That's, that's not who I invite into my inbox. So I'm just, I uh-huh. think I'm just uninformed. I think I'm just um, ignorant. I'm curious, do you s- sign up for those newsletters? Like, do you bring those um, people into your box? I have a special separate box where I try to see what people send for their onboarding emails. And there are a couple brands that I'm reading newsletters from, but largely not. My inbox is kind of pristine trying to use the unsubscribe a lot. I know about the blogs that are really helpful and uh, Ahrefs blogs comes to mind for SEO, for example. And they're kind of a role model for 
making our own blog that is really helpful. And if anybody would say, oh, where can you go to read about SaaS email marketing? They would be like, oh, that's the user list blog. It's amazing. And mm-hmm. I think over the last couple of years, we've been able to go there very well. But it's hard as a brand. Like if we were an influencer, the same articles would have bigger impact, I think. I think it's possible to decide that you're going to have a very particular point of view and to really have it be coming from an individual's point of view as opposed to from the brand's point of view. I guess it really depends on what the what the overall objectives are. One thing that I see still being recommended is to write emails as if they're coming from your friend. And I'm like, I haven't gotten an email from a friend in I don't know how long. You know, I feel like I only get... <laughs> My friends message me on WhatsApp or whatever, you know, like nobody actually emails me anymore. So I feel like almost everything in my inbox is informational or transactional or it can be helpful in some ways, but I don't necessarily look to the inbox anymore as being that sort of personal connection that I feel like I might have five or 10 years ago. I, I don't know if that's, if you experience that as well. I just feel like people's expectations of the inbox have shifted somewhat. It's definitely business tool versus, well, I guess an inbox looks different for different people. So let's, mm-hmm. uh, let's admit that. Sure. <laughs> and there's this phenomenon of Substack and, uh, and, uh, their big loyal audience of readers who are probably not busy to consume all these newsletters. And I'm, I'm reading a couple in the RSS, in my RSS Feedly reader. So in our pre-recording conversation, we had this chat discussing how everybody's expected to write while there's just a handful of people on earth who are professional writers, but we all have to deliver. What are your best tips on overcoming this anxiety and fear of being imperfect and uh, just getting there and getting things done with your writing? Yeah. Well, I think the thing for everyone is to get a handle on your process and to understand that there's a distinction between figuring out what you're going to say, how you're going to say it, and then going back and revising and making it really ready. And that very often we confuse those phases and we get really frustrated with ourselves that the first draft isn't ready to go, even though nobody's first draft is ready to go. Sometimes first draft is okay. If it's a quick email, you don't want to revise it. But for the most part, if we sort of allow that there's going to be a first draft, there's going to be figuring out what to say, that might look like you're writing, but it also might look like post-it notes or a mind map or talking out loud to somebody or dictating and having a transcript coming up, that figuring out what you're going to say can look very many different ways. And then actually choosing the best words to communicate that, that's a second step. And if we can break those out and shift the way that you talk to yourself about how you think it should go, it alleviates a lot of the anxiety. There are also many places you can get feedback from, and these can be your teammates. Like we do a ton of that, uh, not necessarily... Then we do things like expert reviews. So for really big pieces, we ask an industry expert to skim through the piece, maybe provide a quote here and there, and then we put their stamp of approval in the beginning. That's like a win-win for everybody. Uh, Any other tips for like who can contribute? Yeah. And I think, I think that's a great example. And that if you find that one person who's always a great reader, you want to keep going back to them. If they give you any feedback that helps you improve as a writer, keep working with them. You can also bring in those people early in the process. I think that talking things through, we call it in journals and we call it like the beer test. Like if you were to 
share this for five minutes at a bar with somebody, at what point would they lose interest basically? And you're yeah. trying to pay attention, but you, you do this in real life with somebody. They don't necessarily have the background or the understanding about what you're trying to do. And that will allow you to practice your storytelling because in real life, if you're boring, it's over. They'll look away. They'll change the subject. They won't continue to listen. This is a very helpful concept to keep in mind. As we're, we were talking about a success of certain publications, it's about the work that you put in the single piece, but it's also about publishing consistency and that you keep delivering awesome things 10 times and then people will come to, the, uh, to you for the 11th. That really works, but it's hard. <laughs> and then there's distribution, which is very very much forgotten, but if you know that your work is going to be deliberately promoted, it gives you extra motivation to write that happened to us last year when we focused on distribution. What was the shift when you focused on distribution? How are you thinking about it differently? We invited a consultant who was successful at one of the content projects in our industry to ask for content advice. And he was like, if I, if I could start over, I would spend, uh, yeah, his name is Arpit uh, Chodhuri. He's at uh, astoric.com. He's great. He said, if I could start over, I would one half write, one half promote and like much earlier, much more. And like, and that's not just tweeting. It means actually hanging out with people and sharing helpful advice. It's not yeah. a shortcut. It's actual like full-time job or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. One thing, one modification of that, that you could experiment with is to think about if my ideal reader consumes this as reading it, listening to it, whatever it is, what would I want them to say? If they're going to share it on with their friends or their colleagues, what do I want them to say as they're sharing that link or leaving that comments? And then to bring that back to the very beginning as a sort of inspiration to be thinking about how do I help that person have that experience? We've had our peer companies have success with controversial pieces. So when you're deliberately bringing up a controversy uh, and that sparks a discussion and suddenly gets shared, we are yet to master this. We are so boring and helpful. Uh, that's a problem. <laughs> I think you can do that to deliberately stir just for the point of like stirring and like, try, you know, again, trying to get attention and clicks. But I think it's going to be more meaningful if you're taking a stand that's unusual or maybe provocative as opposed to adversarial just for the sake of being controversial. There is also this uh, common advice of having a bad guy in your marketing where you have the anti-hero that you're like, could be one of the industry behemoths that you're taking a stance against. And then you're consistently drumming up this story in every, everything you do basically. What do you become the good guy. <laughs> I'd rather be Luke Skywalker than the Darth Vader, right? I think that that can work. I think you probably don't want to do it all the time. I think you'd probably want to mix it up, but I think it'd be a lot of fun. And it can be, again, the thing that allows you, if you have a framework that works, if you have a kind of structure that works for you, you can repeat that and lean on that to develop other parts of your storytelling at the same time. What are some resources, your own, but other people's two books or blogs that our listeners had, can head over to, to, to become better at writing? Hmm. There is a list of my favorite books for writers on my website. I can mm -hmm. send we're you the link to that. 
We're going to find that and publish in the show notes. That's great. And where can people find you online? I think the best place is probably on my podcast, which is the Writing Coach Podcast with Rebecca L. Weber. There's a few Writing Coach Podcasts, but mine is the one with the little yellow pencil. Nice, nice. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining us today and for sharing your tips. That was amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the questions. We hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thanks, you too.